0: Uh, ever taken any of those, anybody ever taken those personality profiles, you know, where you fill out the little questionnaire and it's kind of like, do you prefer, you know, uh, being in the cold or being in the warm? And it doesn't ask that. We already know that, what the answer to that one is. But, you know, ask, do you prefer this? Do you prefer that? And you go through all these questions uh, and then you get to the end of it and, and, and there's this general description of your personality. Uh, there's lots of these. Uh, there's the DISC. There's Enneagram. There's Breyer, Meyer Briggs. There's uh, Strength Finders. Uh, all sorts of these personality profiles. Now, my wife and I, we've done these uh, a number of times over the years. And we have surprisingly found that my wife and I are different. Anybody else ever find that with your, with your spouse? Uh, so one of these uh, profiles says, I'm an enthusi- enthusiast. It describes me as being a visionary, uh, fun-loving, spontaneous, imaginative, hopeful I'm the guy with a thousand ideas on how to change the world, and we're going to have a lot of fun doing it, right? And I'm like, okay, I can see that in me, all right? My wife, they describe her as the loyalist or the questioner, all right? So here's some of what it says about her personality. She values security. She's responsible. She's detail-oriented. She's a planner. She's vigilant at risk assessment, logistics, and problems, OK, so you've got a guy you've got a guy who's hopeful and just goes for it, and a woman who needs to know all the details. You can imagine, in our 22 years of marriage, there's been a few uh, conflicts, can I say? Usually, usually it comes because I've got some crazy idea, I've got some crazy idea, and I'm like, "Honey. We just need to shirk all of our responsibility. We need to sell everything. We just need to get up and go. We need to go have this adventure. We need to spend all the money we don't have. And, uh, and, you know, we've got this experience I want to go on. We're not prepared for it, but come on, babe, let's go in an hour. My wife feels like she's been hit by a bus. She's like, what are you even talking about? And she says, hold on. She says, Kevin, you're crazy. Here's a thousand reasons why this isn't going to work. It's a terrible idea. Now go do the dishes and I walked away crushed. I'm like, my dreams are gone. You see, the longer we're married, though, we've, we, we've had to learn how do we communicate together, knowing that we have different strengths and weaknesses, and we've had to learn wisdom on how to communicate because, you know, my wife, I want her to, to hear me. I want her to hear my crazy ideas and, and have a little consideration, and she wants me to consider that she needs to know the details and get some of these things planned out. So, so I've learned... I've learned I can't just come in and drop one of these crazy ideas on Sam's lap. I actually have to slow down and say, hey, 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 I've got this idea. I'm kind of interested in this. Would you help me think through this? Would you help me process through how we could actually make this happen? And and invite her to use her strengths of figuring out the details and the logistics and all those things. And pretty soon, she's kind of like, okay, I'll, I'll walk down this path with you. And for her, she's learned she can't shoot my ideas down immediately. She actually has to entertain my crazy ideas and begin to help me process through, okay, well, if we did do something as crazy as that, like, here's what we would have to do. Here's the steps. And, and basically, she waits until I get distracted by some other big idea. Like, that's just the way it works for, for us. The reality is, though, if we're going to influence somebody else, we're going to influence our spouse, we're going to influence somebody else, it requires a little bit of wisdom. It requires a little bit of strategy for us to be effective to get our idea across. Think about it this way. Uh, This is true in most parts parts of life. Teddy Roosevelt, the president from a long time ago, it was said that when he was expecting a visitor to come to the White House, right? So he's expecting a congressman or or a foreign dignitary, whoever it was. What Teddy Roosevelt would do is he'd spend the night before reading about this person and their interests. So that way when they come in, he could talk about whatever interested them. And this is what Teddy Roosevelt said. He said, the royal road to a person's heart is to talk about the things that he or she treasures most. It's being strategic. It's saying, if I want influence on this person, I want to lead them to a place where I want to go, I need to be a little bit strategic and have some wisdom in the way that I communicate to them. In fact, i would explain this one more way. Uh, Years ago, I worked at Madison House, Intercity Youth Center, and worked with a lot of these Hispanic families and uh, all these young people, and I'm trying to mentor and disciple and love, and point to Jesus, and, and I'm like, it was such a, a, a fruitful time. But one of the things about these kids is they all love soccer. Now, I'm a sports guy. Like, I love anything with a ball. I love all sports. Soccer was my least favorite. It was one that I, I like, I just can't play. Like, I'm terrible at it. But these kids loved soccer. So guess what I started doing? Started playing soccer. And we had some high school boys, and they decided we're going to go join this, uh, this adult indoor soccer league. And it was in a Hispanic league, and uh, so somehow they got this idea, maybe we should let Kevin play in our team. It was wonderful. It was, it was like, it was, like I, you know, we, we, we'd play, and uh, I would be on the, uh, on the field for about three minutes. That's all they let me play, three minutes of the entire game. And I'm just watching everything. I'm like, whoa, these guys are, you know, and they're like, Kevin, move, move. And uh, there was one kid named Gerald, and he was so good. Uh, Gerald now works for, for Young Life here in Yakima, but he was so good. And so what he would do is he'd say, Kevin, I want you to stand right here. And, and when I give you the look, you run towards the goal. And he'd always just put the ball in front of me. All I had to do was just run towards it. And I could actually usually score a goal. And it was, it, was, it was wonderful. And I can't tell you how many times I fell on my face and I hurt parts of my body that you shouldn't hurt. But that's what happens because I just wasn't as coordinated as these other kids were at playing soccer I played two, two years with them. I was the worst player in the entire league. Uh, it was almost embarrassing for me again and again to show up and, and, and play. Why would I do that, though? I mean, why would I embarrass myself like that? I remember my wife and my kids would come and watch me, and I'm like, don't come and watch me. I don't want you to see this. I'm like, I'm trying to impress you, Sam. Come on. No, you do that because I'm trying to deepen the relationship with these kids. I want to pursue a relationship with them and take an interest in what interests them so I can have influence and I can continue to impact them and point them towards Jesus. There was an intentionality. There was a strategy to me playing soccer with them because I wanted to have influence and an impact in their lives. We are uh, spending the next two months, and we are running through to finish the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts for about 40 weeks now. It's been a long time And uh, we're going to try and end here shortly. The book of Acts is wonderful because it tells the story of the early church. The very first church long, long, long ago. And how the early church, it wasn't just an institution. It wasn't just this place where you come and you receive some religious services. And you hear some good jokes and you put some money in the offering. And you go home and you just go on your life. Now the early church was literally a movement that began to change everything around them. Changed families, changed neighborhoods, changed cities, changed the world. And a little bit, we've been in the series saying, God, like how could we as a church today, how could restoration, how could we become a movement and begin to change everything around us? Now, when we started the book of Acts, we saw that the early church, it started in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was full of Jewish people. And so as, as the, the, the Christians, or the disciples, as they're trying to... to bring in the church and introduce Jesus, they had to wrestle with these people who believed, man, we're saved by, or we're made right with God because we follow all the religious rules, right? We, we uh, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. We do these things to, to make God approve of us. And the disciples come and they're like, no, 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 that's not what it's about. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And when you believe in what Jesus did for you on the cross, that's how you are made right with God. And so they they preached the gospel in Jerusalem and people began to receive that message. Where no longer do they trust their religious works, now they begin to trust Jesus for their salvation. But here's the thing, they're in Jerusalem and their Jewish heritage was such an important thing for them that they believed in Jesus, but they still held on to some of those customs. They still held on to some of those uh, Jewish customs and and, and things from their, their heritage. Now, as the book of Acts progressed, we saw Peter, followed by Paul, the apostles. They went and took the gospel outside of Jerusalem. They went to the surrounding regions, to the countryside, to the different places, and started preaching to people who weren't Jews. And so these, these, these non-Jewish people, they begin to trust Jesus as their Savior, and then there becomes this big dialogue. Well, since the Jewish people believe we can trust in Jesus and follow our Jewish customs— Does that mean that the non-Jewish people can trust in Jesus and they still have to follow the customs? That was a debate in the early church, right? New people come to faith in Jesus. Can they just believe in Jesus or do they also have to become a Jew? Well, this was settled in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, the apostle Paul goes to the leaders in the church of Jerusalem and is like, here's what the problem is. Here's the debate. And everybody agreed. Okay, we are saved by faith in Jesus. That's what makes us right with God. God. Believing what Jesus did for us on the cross, the religious devotion, the, the Jewish customs, these new believers don't have to follow those things. They don't, uh, 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 they're, they're, they're secondary. They're, they're not significant. So what does Paul do? Paul goes on his missionary journeys. We've studied this the last couple chapters. He's going on these missionary journeys, preaching the gospel to Gentiles, to people who are non-Jewish, saying, hey, believe in Jesus. That's all you've got to do today which makes the text that we wrote, like we read this morning a little bit confusing. Because here's Paul. He's gone and he's preached for years, preached to, to thousands of people. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. You don't have to follow the religious customs. Yet, as Paul comes back into Jerusalem, the church says, Hey, Paul, now that you're back, we want you to follow this Jewish custom. We want you to follow this vow to show everybody that you love Jesus, but you're also a good Jew. It's kind of like, it's a little confusing. Like, Paul, I thought you were the guy that was teaching and preaching. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. Why then would you come back and partake in this vow? And what Paul is doing is setting an example for us and what it looks like for us to be strategic so we can have an influence on the people around us. He is humbly setting aside his preferences so that way he can have an influence on the church in Jerusalem. That's where we're going today. We're going to jump in. Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 17. Remember where we picked off last week? Paul and his, uh, his traveling companions, they're on the way to Jerusalem. And they arrive in Jerusalem. In verse 17, it says, when they come to Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters, they welcome them warmly. And the following day, they went into James. James is a pastor at the church of Jerusalem. And all the elders were present. This is the leaders of the church. Verse 19, it says, after greeting them, Paul related one by one all that God had done among the Gentiles through their ministry. Now, Paul had traveled some thousands of miles on his missionary journeys. He had uh, spent upwards of uh, five to ten years on these missionary journeys, preaching to people, and now he's back in the church of Jerusalem, and he's given a report of all the things that God has done. It actually says he gave a report one by one. So I picture Paul walking in. He's probably got a slideshow. He's like, man, it was awesome, guys. We went to Antioch, and we went to Philippi, and Corinth, and Ephesus. Man, it was great. And like, people were getting saved, and churches were getting planted, and it was awesome. And then God did these miracles. Like, like guys, listen, there was one time when I was preaching, and there was a kid in the balcony, and he fell out of the balcony. He fell asleep while I was preaching. I know, that's almost like, <laughs> that's not a miracle. That happens all the time. But the kid falls asleep while I was preaching. He falls down and dies, and God resurrected him. He's like, guys, it was amazing the things that God did. And then he's like, not only that, but man, we face all sorts of hardships. He's like, see this scar right here? This is when I got arrested in Ephesus. And this one right here is when I was beaten and left for dead. And I was put in jail. I mean, can you? I mean, all the things that we've heard the last couple of months, Paul's recounting these things one by one to, these, to, these, to the leaders of the church, saying, how awesome is it what God is doing? It is awesome. God is changing lives. He's causing the church to become a movement across the entire world. Verse 20, it says, when they heard it, they glorified God. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome. And not only that, they said, see, brother, uh, how many thousands of, uh, uh, are among the Jews who have believed? They're like, man, Paul, it's awesome that you've gone to the Gentiles, you've gone to the non-Jews, and you're preaching, and people are getting saved. But while you were doing that, And God's been working in Jerusalem. There are thousands. The report is there's thousands of Jews that are now believing in the gospel. They believe that Jesus died for their sin and he rose from the grave, conquering sin and Satan and death and hell. They're like Paul, while you were gone, these Jews are believing in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And that is a relationship with God with Jesus that saves you. That your relationship with God isn't based on your religious works. It's based on believing in Jesus. Like, it sounds like this should be a time for a party, right? Paul's recounting all that he's done, all that God's done through him, and it's like, yeah, that's awesome. And then the leaders of the church are like, we've had thousands of Jews place their faith in Jesus. We should have a party. But that's not what happens. Because it says in the end of verse 20, but they are all zealous for the law. There are these thousands of Jews that have believed in Jesus, but they all are zealous for the law. Which means they believed in the grace of Jesus. They believed in grace. They believed in what Jesus did on the cross. But they still held on to their Jewish customs. They still had this Jewish culture that they were like, man, like like, like these these religious rules, man, they're part of our heritage, they're part of a national identity. So we're gonna hold on to these, and not just hold on to them, they're zealous about it. Zealous about, oh, we believe in Jesus. But we also believe you've got to follow all the rules. Verse 20, it says they were zealous for the law. Verse 21, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake the law of Moses by not circumcising your children and not to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They certainly will hear about you that you have come. See, James says, hold up, hold up, hold up. Paul, we should be celebrating. But Paul, there's been a rumor going around. There's been a rumor going around that, that you are, and it, it's a partial truth, and these zealous Jewish Christians, they're, 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 they're hearing that you are preaching to the Gentiles, that all you have to do is believe in Jesus. But often what happens is, you know, people hear what they want to hear. And so they skip over the fact that, oh, they're preaching just to Gentiles. No, they actually think, Paul, you're preaching to everybody. You're preaching to Jews to say, hey, you don't have to follow our Jewish customs. You don't have to circumcise your children. You don't have to do these things. And what happens is there's a little bit of truth that's distorted, and a rumor turns into something it wasn't. And what happened is when one person heard it, they called their best friend and were like, oh, did you hear what Paul's doing? And that person, they heard it and they were like, oh, I've got to call my small group. They tell the small group, did you know what Paul's doing? And that, all that person, all those people in the small group, they call all their friends. And pretty soon everybody hears, man, Paul its not just preaching to Gentiles. He's preaching to Jews saying, you don't have to follow the law of Moses. You don't have to circumcise your kids. You don't have to hold on to our Jewish customs anymore. This is why gossip becomes so destructive. Because it takes a little bit of a, a, a rumor because it's something that's not. And now James is like, hey, Paul, we're in trouble. Because all these people have heard these rumors and they've propagated about you. And now that, when they hear that you come back, it's going to be ugly. They're going to be mad. We're going to have a fight. What are we going to do? Verse 23, though, James, the pastor, he has a suggestion. He says, here's here's what we have. We have four men who have decided to take a vow. Verse 24, we want you to take these men. We want you to purify yourself with them. I want you to pay their expenses so they can shave shave their heads. And then all will know that there is no truth to what's been said about you and that you yourself live according to the law. James says, we've got these guys that have made a, a Nazarene vow, a Nazarite vow. All right, they, they, they've made this promise to take 30 days and to consecrate themselves to God. And by doing that, they were going to abstain from meat, abstain from, from alcohol, and they weren't going to cut their hair. And then after 30 days, they would present themselves at the temple. They'd make these, these uh, expensive offerings, and then they would shave their heads to show their dedication to God. And James says, listen, these guys, they're going to go through with this Jewish custom, this Jewish vow... And James says, Paul, we want you to do it with them, and actually, we want you to pay their way. We want you to pay for all the sacrifice. We want you to pay for them to get their hair cut. And and Paul, if you do this, this shows all the people, this shows the nation, this shows the church that you love Jesus, but you're still a good Jew. You still follow all of our religious customs. Now, again, like like context. Like, you've got Paul coming and celebrating and telling all the cool things that God had done. Man, we had all these people get saved. We had these miracles that happened. And then you have the leaders in Jerusalem. They're like, yeah, we've had thousands of people get saved as well. We should have a party. But instead, they're dealing with a rumor mill, with the problems that the gossip has created. And the church is asking Paul, hey, would you relent and follow this Jewish custom? Would you follow this Jewish vow? And again, like, like Paul, his message His mantra, his number one message has been, you are free in Jesus. You don't have to follow the law. Religious rules don't make you closer to God. It's faith in him alone. And this is something that Paul has passionately preached. And so as James is like, hey, Paul, would you go back to this? Of course Paul's not going to do it, right? Of course he's, I mean, he's not a hypocrite. He's not going to do that. But verse 26 Paul took the men the next day. He purified himself along with them. He went to the temple and giving notice when the days for purification had been fulfilled, and he presented an offering with each of them. And I'm like, wait a second, what? Why would Paul, why would you do that? Paul, you're the guy that talks about how we're free in Christ. We don't have to follow the religious rules, we just believe in Jesus. Paul, why would you do this? Let me be clear on something, though. The most important thing for any of us, most important thing for Paul and the church in Jerusalem was uh, salvation. Like, like Paul knew this, okay? the, The church in Jerusalem, they knew and were in agreement that we are saved not by religious works. We're saved by belief and faith in Jesus, okay? And I want to be clear, this vow, this vow is not a salvation issue, right? These men are not taking this vow to say, oh, we want to do enough so God approves of us. That's not what's happening here. So Paul partaking this vow is not a salvation. He's not saying, hey, if you guys do this like me, you'll become a godly person. That's not what he's saying. See, I think Paul's participation in this vow, I think it is simply strategic. Paul wasn't so proud or arrogant to think, hey, My way is the only way. Everybody has to do it just like me. No, Paul had humility and wisdom. Paul loved the church in Jerusalem. He loved the Jews. They were his kindred. They were his people. He had a desire to see them come to know Jesus and have a deeper faith in him. And so Paul comes in humility and wisdom saying, man, I want to keep my influence on the church. I want to continue to influence these people for Jesus. So what's he going to do? He's going to find out what's important to them. He's going to humble himself and meet them exactly where they are. You go to Jerusalem, guess what? Jewish custom is insignificant to those people. Paul doesn't believe he has to be held to those things, but what does he do? He says, man, this is what's important to these people. Okay. In fact, Paul wrote a little bit about his his reasoning in this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says this. Paul said, Even though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. Why? So I can win more to the truth. Here's what he says. To the Jews, I became like a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law. Why? So I can win more of those under the law to Jesus. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I became all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. He says, I do all of this. Verse 23, I do all of this so that people will like me. I do all of this so people will think I'm such a good person. I do all of this so I can have more friends and be popular. No, verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel. Paul had his convictions. He had his belief. Man, it is faith in Jesus alone. These religious rules, these customs, man, they don't, they don't have significance. And if anybody knows, like, any, like, like Paul is a guy who wrote Bible. Anybody in here write Bible? I've never written Bible. Never done that. Like if anybody we should be listening to, we should be listening to Paul out of all people, Right? Yet Paul is given us the example that he is willing to humble himself to set aside his convictions. Why? To meet people where they are so that he can continue to have an influence for the gospel, to impact their faith, to impact their life. For Paul, relationships are more important than being right. So Paul, wanting to have an influence on this church in Jerusalem. He kind of took some advice from the great, great, great philosopher, Kenny Rogers. You got to know when to hold them. Know when to—I knew you guys knew that. You guys are sinners. Sinners. You got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. Know when to run. This story, this text is teaching us that for us to have a gospel influence on other people, it requires we be strategic and humble enough to prioritize relationships over being right. Man, if we want to have an impact on the people around us, we start thinking about our families, our neighborhoods. We think about uh, kids we want to mentor. We think about these different things. Like if we want to have an influence for them for the gospel, we have to be strategic and humble enough to be willing to prioritize a relationship over being right. In the words of Paul, we have to be willing to become all things for all people. Now, this principle, it applies in so many different ways in life. Like, man, it applies uh, in, in so many relationships. Marriage, family, work, like it is, it is true. But we're at church this morning, and as Christians, we're called to a specific purpose. We're called to impact our city for the gospel, for, for, for Jesus, for the love of Christ. We want to see transformation. We want to see God's light come into the dark places. We want to see lives being transformed. We want to see the brokenhearted people healed We want to see liberty for the captives and freedom for the prisoners from sin and oppression and all those things. And the question is, church, how do we do that? Like, if this is what we're called to do, we're called to to make a difference, how do we do that? Is it by sharing Bible verses on social media? Is that how we make a difference? Is it by sticking the sticker on the back of our car, Christian? Christian? How do we make a difference? Is it by sitting on a street corner and picketing? Is it by gathering into our holy huddles with other Christians that are just like us because it feels safe to be around people who view things exactly the way that I do? Is that how we change the world? Do we change the world by judging and condemning people that are different than us by pointing out all the things that they do that's wrong? I mean, can we just acknowledge the past few years? I mean, isn't this what life has been as a part of cancel culture? Whether it's the pandemic or politics or Taylor Swift, I don't know why anybody likes Taylor Swift, but like, hey, you're either with me or against me. Sports teams, what what do we do? We plant our flag. We plant our flag. This is where I'm at. If you don't believe with me, I don't want anything to do with you. You You're part of cancel culture. You're an idiot. When that's the response of Christians, we appear incredibly judgmental. We are unapproachable. We are not gaining any influence on the people around us. What are we actually doing? We're actually turning people away. We're turning people away from the love of God because of the way that we cancel culture. People will continue to suffer without knowing the love, forgiveness, and healing of God. Listen, you can have your convictions. You should have your convictions. You should know what you believe But the question is, what is your purpose? What is your purpose? Is your purpose to defend your rights and criticize people that are different than you? Is your purpose to make clones where everybody sees things just the way you do? Or is your purpose to pursue relationships where you can have an influence on them for good? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's the latter and not the former. Philippians chapter 2. Apostle Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He says, look not to your own interests. Look not to your own preferences. Look not to your own rights. but Look also to the interests of others. In fact, I would say it like this. That the strength of our character, the strength of our character is not measured by what we stand for. It's measured by how much we care for one another. And we want to say, God, I want to step into what you're calling me to do. (laughs) I don't think it's because of all the things we stand for. I think it's by the way that we care for other people. So this morning, think about the circles of the people around you. Think about your family, your workplace, your school, your neighborhood, Think about the people in your church. What do those people value? What is important to them? And how can you become all things to all people so you can gain an influence in their life? Here's a couple of examples of how it works. Alcohol is a touchy subject. There's lots of opinions about alcohol. Some people drink, some people don't. The question is, are we willing to be sensitive to alcohol? other people. Are we sensitive to their opinion? Are we quick to judge them? Are we quick to to hinder them, to cause a problem for them? Or what's more important, are we willing to say, man, what can I do so I can have a relationship with this person? Where I'm not going to make this the line that we have to agree on. I've got some friends. (laughs) I've got some friends that are vegans. Vegans friends are great. Because you'll never have a beef with them. Like that's just to be said, you'll never have a beef with them. (laughs) Sorry, I've I love gosh. (laughs) Hey, our family, we love red meat. Like we've got the smoker and we love throwing meat on that thing. But I tell you what, there's no reason for me to hinge on some other person. When I'm hanging out with my vegan friends, great, we'll do some kale i got no problem with that because I'd rather prioritize the relationship rather than my rights. What's more important to me? I was talking this week to a missionary friend, and he lives in a Muslim country. He lives in a Muslim country, and he says, you know what? The, the crazy thing is there are so few Christians around me, so few Christians, that the Christians I found, man, they all belong to different denominations. They have different convictions, some of them are, are, are you know, they're, they're holy rollers. Some of them are super conservative. He said, I've learned I have to set aside my convictions to prioritize the relationship with the people around me. And not that those things don't matter. Not that they don't matter. Don't hear me say that they don't matter. They do. But are we willing to set aside those things to pursue the relationship with somebody else? See, the church in the book of Acts, they turned the world upside down. Because of the love of God found in Jesus. And it was amazing. It was amazing what the early church did. We're talking about miracles. We're talking about people being redeemed, lives being restored, marriages being healed, hope being renewed. Like, it's, it's amazing. The book of Acts and the pages again and again and again is amazing. Do you realize that same power is available to us today? The story of Acts, the power of God, the Holy Spirit... That same power is available to us today in places just like Yakima and Restoration Church. The question is are we willing to be strategic and humble enough to prioritize the relationships over being right? Pursue relationships with people so we can have an influence on them rather than sitting there demanding arrogance our own rights our own prejudices we ought to be like the paratrooper what paratrooper i'm glad you asked there was a military general who got assigned to a new paratrooper platoon he shows up they're all there all the guys are there and he goes through and he's like hey i'm gonna i'm gonna get to know these guys so he starts going through and let's go like, do you like parachuting do you like jumping out of planes Oh, man, it's great. I love it. Best thing ever. Goes to another guy. Do you like jumping out of planes? Man, it's such a thrill. Nothing else I'd rather be doing. Goes through the whole line and gets to the very end. And there's this last guy. I think he was a chaplain. I don't know. I'm just saying he was a chaplain. Do you like jumping out of planes? Looks at him and says, no, I hate it. It's the worst thing ever. The general's like, uh, then what the heck are you doing? Well, I want to be around the guys who love it. That's what it looks like to be all things to all people. That's what it looks like for us to say, man, if I want to have an influence on the people around me, I'm willing to set aside my preferences. I'm willing to set these things aside so I can pursue a relationship to have a gospel influence. And we start thinking about Restoration Church. We start thinking about, man, God, how great would it be to see you do some mighty things in us and through us? The question I have for you, are you pursuing relationships with the people around you? Are you engaging on their level, meeting people where they are? Are you willing to be all things to all people, to set aside your preferences? Philippians chapter 2, consider other people's interests more than your own. Man, if we did that, wouldn't it be awesome to see God do some of these miracles that we see in the book of Acts? Lives transformed, families with their entire futures rewritten because of the grace of God. Let's pray.